previously on Popping Collars. The novel Life After Life, I think, is fantastic. A little frustrating, I think, will stay with you. It stayed with me for years after I first heard it. Okay. That has also come up on my audiobook thing. So basically, Ricardo, I think you're a 43-year-old woman on or I am, or I'm, or I am uh, a fifty-one-year-old gay Latino. Fifty-one-year-old and a gay man. I think that it's one way or the other. It's with something maybe in the middle. We we'll meet in the middle. Welcome to Popping Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and pop culture. My name is Greg Knight. I am the director of Children and Youth Ministries at the Church of Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, Florida. With me are my co-hosts, Betsy Gonzalez. Hello, Betsy. Where are you these days and where are you up to? I am here at the Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia, and it's summertime. Greg, it's just yeah, it all is. that Will Smith song, like all the time, like that <laughs> constant soundtrack in my head. Um, yeah, so so we're on we're on summer break, and we also have Liz Easton with us. Liz, where are you? What do you do? Hey, Greg, I am the canon to the ordinary of the Diocese of Nebraska, and I'm here in Omaha, where we are enjoying the annual College World Series. Right I'm not, I can't track it. I'm not a huge baseball fan, but mm. um, you can tell like there are lots of people in town. It's really fun, super hot, big <laughs> thunderstorms. It's a crazy time of year to watch baseball, but it's tons of fun. It's high traffic Omaha time yep. uh, these days. And we have a very special guest. He is the author of the book, Movies Are Prayers, uh, that we're going to be talking about today. And he is also the co-host of the excellent movie review podcast, Film Spotting. It's Josh Larson, everybody. Welcome to the show, Josh. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I, I got the invite a while back. You guys are planners. You, you really <laughs> look ahead and plan, plan these things out. And I saw... You did a show on Wes Anderson, devoted to Wes Anderson. So immediately I was morally obligated to uh, be part of this program. So thanks for thank, letting me do that. You can thank Betsy for the Wes Anderson episode. Yeah, yeah that, was, awesome. that was my friend Timothy. I'm like, what would you want to talk about on the podcast? He's like, <laughs> uh, Wes Anderson? It was great. So Josh, uh, fill in our audience a little bit. Where are you and what do you do when you're not watching or talking about movies? Sure. So I'm outside of Chicago, where it is, I guess, maybe the furthest north of anyone, but I'm going to guess probably also the sweatiest right now. We've immediately gone from freezing to five days of gorgeousness, and now it's just awful. So that's kind of the <laughs> seasonal transitions in Chicago. And I do the Film Spotting podcast on the side. The book was kind of on the side as well. And the main job I do is as editor of Think Christian, which is a faith and pop culture website, blog. Uh, sounds like something your listeners, given what you guys talk about, uh, would really be into if they haven't checked out Think Christian already. Thank you so much. This is episode 85 of Popping Collars. And our topic today is basically storytelling. So storytelling is probably the oldest human art form. As soon as human beings were able to communicate stories became a way of sharing wisdom, experience, and relationship. Uh, fast forward to our present time, 
where we've been living with a form of storytelling using moving images for about a hundred years now, give or take. And I would argue that the ability for filmmakers to envision, that is to show you the stories that they tell has completely changed how we experience the world around us. So our conversation today is going to be a little bit of film history, a little bit of what film makes us feel. Um, but before we get to all that, I wanted to ask you, Josh, about your book, which uh, chronicles movies throughout history and the ways people use them as tools for making meaning. So the title of your book is Movies Are Prayers. And I think we have a pretty good sense of what movies are. So uh, how would you define or describe what you mean by the word prayer, which can sometimes have a lots of different meanings? Yeah, the immediate thought is it's how we've experienced prayer in church, probably. Very structural, very traditional. Most of us, those of us who have grown up in the church, have been taught to pray. Probably it's one of the first things we were ever shown how to do. And so if that's been your experience, that's the way you think about it. You know, it has those sort of definitions and structures built around it. But prayer is also extremely instinctual. It's uh, very emotional. It's very volatile. And here is where I start to make the connection between the things that we express just as a human being, we throw out there. Uh, If we're believers, we understand that we're throwing it out to God. If um, you're not a believer, you're just throwing it out there to get it out. But as a believer, we'd say, well, God's listening. So he hears that. Uh, And the connection that I make are that movies, so many films, it's one of their functions is to express a basic opinion, understanding of what it means to be human, what this world is like, what we make of it. Um, And that's what we're trying to do in our prayers, too. And even if you look back at those structural prayers, um, the liturgy, the, the church prayer that we've been taught in, they're doing a lot of these same things because they're drawn from the Bible. So they're lamenting, they're confessing, they're offering praise. Uh, all of this stuff is, is being offered up to God by believers, by unbelievers. It's just given different terms, and, and we look at it in different ways. And of course, there are important distinctions to make between liturgy and what a movie is offering. But there's also a foundational similarity between them. I, I like that because what it makes me think is that prayer is what what it, you ultimately break it down to is that prayer is communication, whether that be communication. Well, we would say communication from human to God, but as we communicate with each other, right, we're expressing sort of forms of prayer in the way that we show our relationships to each other and stuff like that. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, movies, most movies are probably firstly being directed towards an audience. That's what their creators would say. So that's more the dynamic that you're talking about there, person to person, through Mm -hmm. art. I think that in the Episcopal Church across the board, we tend to have um, kind of a deficit in formation when it comes to prayer. What is prayer? How do we pray? And we often allow the liturgy to to be the bulk of our prayer life, which I don't think is true. I think that humans are meant to pray to God in secret. And that's the part that maybe we're not always great at as Episcopalians. But I I have noticed um, 
I've become aware of it more as I do. I help churches who are looking for new priests. And that often means, especially in small churches, a season of um, morning prayer instead of the whole Eucharist, which is how we typically worship on a Sunday morning. And I've noticed that even for folks who spend a lot of their life worshiping using morning prayer on Sunday morning, there's a real devotion to the Eucharist in the Episcopal Church that is just deeply felt and missed when it's not present. So I think our Eucharistic prayer, which tells the whole story of salvation and also culminates in really a consummation of our relationship with Jesus through, um, you know, the sacraments of bread and wine is, is really central to who we are as Episcopalians, as Anglican Christians right now. And mm-hmm. so I think that that formation has happened Sunday in and Sunday out. It has seeped into us. I also think that the important component of prayer, that secret prayer that I was mentioning, is um, very often a struggle for Episcopalians because we rely so deeply on those beautiful historical common prayers. We often don't know what it means to be in communication with God, you know, personally and privately. Oh, totally. I get people freaked out all the time. Like, Oh, I can't pray. You know, like, <laughs> and like ask, ask uh, sort of people to pray before like grace before meals or something. It's like, uh, uh, you know, this like this wide panicked look on their faces in the Episcopal church usually. Yeah, no, I've, I've had to train myself. <laughs> oh really? Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Now, now I love it. And now like people like, Oh, looking forward to your prayer before the faculty meeting. Like, you know, what's it going to be, you know, cause I like to name where we are. Like I'm, I'm yeah. speaking to my audience. You know, I have a very focused demo here working at a school and, and that's hard, but, um, but we're in like a prayer, like resurgence here. Like we, we changed mm. up our chapel service this year. We now offer options, bodily options to standard kneel for prayer, as opposed to just leaning over and assuming the position, like the plane's going down, which is before. And um, we've added in like a cycle of prayer, which has been really cool because it's and it's students praying and it's them praying for individual advisories. Every kid is an adult is named in the community at some point throughout the year. Totally. Um, no, the thing that you said at the beginning, that idea of like naming where we are. Honestly, that's what I loved about the book, Josh, was the sense of like, if you do get freaked out by the word prayer, you kind of have the grounding of the word movies because everybody goes to the movies and everybody knows how the movies make them feel. And by grounding it in sort of a common, you know, experience that, that a lot of people share, it kind of demystifies, it kind of like uh, takes the scariness out of the prayer part. Right. It's yeah. It's interesting as we're talking about liturgical prayer, uh, you know, the value that I do see in it is it's certainly that it serves as formation. I imagine at a school, Betsy, that that's crucial to have that element to it. But the value I found in it, and I happen to attend, so I come out of the Reformed tradition, uh, Christian Reformed Church is uh, a congregation that I belong to now, and we happen to have a very liturgical service. So, you know, not all CRC churches are that, but ours is. And, and the one thing that I like is there are, um, as much as I do appreciate being able to pray to God anytime, anywhere about anything that's on my heart. Um, There are times where I don't have the words and then the liturgy is there uh, to provide them and, and to give me that, that context and to get me started. And that's really partly how the idea for the book came about is I realized that I would be watching certain films 
and it would be serving not the formative purpose as much as the liturgical one of providing me the lament that I didn't maybe have the words for about that particular subject that the film was addressing. Um, or maybe it was praise, you know, films that are, especially films that are anchored around gorgeous natural beauty so often will function for me as giving me the words of praise. Like I'm experiencing that as I'm watching the film, the way I would reading, you know, a Psalm together with um, others in church. And so it was, it was having those shared experiences side by side that allowed me to see that the, these were really prayerful movie going experiences that I was having. Yeah. We'll have, you know, some folks that we work with, like recommend movies that we should check out. And I'll be like, Oh God. Oh, it's too, it's too on the nose. It's too yeah. on the nose. I like right. the hunting and the finding and the seeking of the voice in there and how it's speaking to me and that it can speak to me at one place when I might've watched that movie originally in the theater. And then you watch it again with your kid or you watch it again in another context and you're like, Oh my Lord, there's this whole other thing in there that I didn't even know was there. Oh, I love, I love that phrase, the hunting and finding and seeking of the voice. Yeah. That's, that's, I'm going to use that when I talk to our writers at Think Christian, because that's what we're trying to do. You know, it's like whatever piece of culture you're considering, not that you'll find it in every piece of culture, but to be open to it um, and to seek that out. Well, it's like why I want my kids to graduate from, you know, here and they have to take theology classes and that sort of thing to be the detectives who are able to kind of figure out and listen to that bandwidth Mm -hmm. of faith and culture. And if they can't hear it, then they're tone deaf to it and they'll miss it. And that there's another subtext that's going on. Or you lose the ability to understand the depth of meaning of the texts or the stories that you receive. I agree with you that it's when you lack the critical historical reading of, you know, the context of the actual thing. Um, But that happens with movies and literature too, you know, that they're timeless in a sense, especially when it's grounded in human emotion and experience. Well, it's seen that story, the story of the incarnation. So, so God's narrative, seeing it reflected and interwoven across centuries, across forms, Um, And it's that when you're able to suss that out or hear that or be the detective um, and find those clues, there's there's something thrilling about that. And there's something shareable about that in ways that, you know, as you were talking about the front, Greg, you know, movies becoming this dominant um, popular art form over the last hundred years of being able to connect that to that larger story, to God's story that that we believe is overarching is sovereign over everything else. Um, it, it's really exciting to find those opportunities. Well, I'm yeah, also it, a behind the scenes nerd too. Like I like to know, you know, what was the director doing there? Like, why would they do that? Mm-hmm. What was that choice about? And yeah. Yeah, it, once it, once it comes and it happens and you're like, Oh man, this was exactly what culture needed right now. Oh my gosh. They're just speaking right to me. Or they're speaking right to this thing that's going on. This movie was made a year and a half ago. Right, you know, right. <laughs> this script has been around Hollywood for 10 years. And it's like, and how does it come right at this moment when, when it's what you needed or what, what was, was so reflective of culture and then to find out how much that was second guessed in the process and how, how all those motivations actually came together to make that thing. 
or if it wasn't imagined at all. Like I think that films, I would imagine, like I'm not a filmmaker, obviously, but I would imagine that films are a lot like sermons that when you're done preaching and someone comes up to you and is like, Oh, when you said this one thing, it was perfect. It was totally perfect. It, It was like you were speaking to me and you, what I, what you meant was the, and you know, I walk away from an exchange like that thinking like, Damn, that was a good sermon. I had no idea that I was doing it. <laughs> like, not a clue. And I would guess that films are like that too for the people who make them. Like, they li- they have their own lives, and mm-hmm. they have far longer lives than a sermon. I mean, one of the real challenges of preaching is they live such incredibly short lives. And a film, you get to revisit and come back to a different seasons in your life, just over and over. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a that's a good analogy. And also, I like Betsy, when you mentioned that you're curious about the choices the filmmaker made, because the, the balance we have to strike when doing this, of course, is is to not hijack the film or, you know, kidnap it so far away from its creator's intentions. And that can be difficult, you know, to to allow our own interpretations to really um, take root without rejecting what those critical creative decisions were at the very beginning. So the the only way I found to even get close to doing that is to pay attention to those choices that you're talking about. So sort of ask like, why is the cinematography this way? Why did they use these colors in this film, the music choices, the performance choices. And then if we can give that stuff, it's due those, that creativity it's due we'll also find more avenues for those little clues we're talking about. You know, those are all little things that hold potential resonance for us. Um, And and so I do like to try to start with the details of the art first and then see what it says to me after that, rather than kind of like coming to it. It'd be like coming to a sermon, like this is what I want this sermon to say to me today. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you bring to it, ignoring that and, and, and insisting on your own personal interpretation. But, uh, but that, you know, that can be tricky to do. But I will say the, the cool thing about movies is that it, they've been around long enough that you kind of, you have a feel for um, how sort of how, how storytelling through film has evolved. So for instance, a perfect example is uh, the movie hereditary that just came out. I, I just saw it last week, loved it. And what it did well for me as an audience member watching it is that it used sort of shorthand references to sort of 70s horror. So it sort of used like shorthand references to uh, The Omen, shorthand for um, Rosemary's Baby, shorthand for Don't Look Now, like all these sort of great sort of 70s horror you know, staples really like cult classics. Uh, so, so when I was seeing echoes from those films automatically, like inside, I was starting to feel dread and concern for sort of everybody involved. And there were no, like it's, it's fabulous because it's one of those horror movies that sneaks up on you because there are no jump scares. It's not like sort of the horror factory, you know, conjuring stuff that's out there now. It's just sort of like this, this story, this original story of, grief told through this lens of dread if you have these experiences with these other films um so you're able to kind of build off of stories that have come before in order to tell new stories yeah i think horror is one of the genres where that sort of shorthand is 
most accessible, most easily referenced because we all have those. The first horror film you see is going to leave such an impression, right? It kind of locks in on your brain. And then we see the toolbox that those filmmakers are working from. Of course, horror, you know, you can get a lot of ripoffs too, where they're just lazily using those tropes. But I think for sure in Hereditary, it's first time writer, director, amazingly, Ari Aster. Um, He definitely knows uh, that whole tradition and is playing with that for sure. Mm -hmm. Like if you have ears to hear, you can hear kind of where this, what's undergirding this message, which I think is a really cool way of telling stories. You know, we, this whole podcast is predicated on this idea that we use pop culture to make meaning out of our lives. And there's so much pop culture nowadays um, for people to consume and so much of it is just that. Like we talk, we we had a, like a whole episode about blockbuster movies coming out this summer, because so much of it is just sort of consumerist culture. And I'm thinking of like things like um, comic book movies or adaptations of novels and stuff like that. There's almost the sense that like it's not real until it's a movie. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's like I'm gonna write uh, I'm gonna write a YA novel, but it's not a real thing until you know the Maze Runner comes out. You know, it's like that yeah. kind of that kind of thing. It's like I, I I wonder what's behind sort of the power that we put in seeing these things sort of writ large on the big screen. I think that does still persist, even though it's gotten some real challenges of late. First of all, from quality television. You know, I, I don't have enough time to follow as many television series as I'd like to, but uh, the ones I've seen, they're absolutely of cinematic quality in terms of craft and storytelling. So that's one challenge. The other challenge is, you know, just the arrival and prominence of video games uh, and the amount of money that those earn in terms of entertainment every year. But still this sense, um, you're right, Greg, of movies being sort of the pinnacle Uh, A story has arrived when it's in movie form Mm -hmm. does persist. Uh, I I wonder if maybe there's something about the communal experience of that, of going to a movie and being with others in an audience that gives that that sort of cachet. Because Mm -hmm. we don't really have that in any other art form. I mean, the live theater we do, but, but that's, you know, clearly movies surpass that in terms of entertainment and popularity long ago. Um, so it's really the only place we could go be gathered together, direct our attention towards a single thing, share it together, come out with vastly different interpretations of what we just experienced and share those together. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just doesn't happen when it, it's not the same, even in a video game where you're playing with others um, who may be all over the country or world. I guess that's communal in a way, but it's not exactly the same. It's not the same as streaming a show on Netflix, even while you're live tweeting about it. That's communal in a way, but it's not the same. You know, nothing brings us to church in terms of entertainment quite like the movies still do. You know, it's like in that way that we are, we are God's creation and this expression of God's dream. And one of those things that we share with God is, is creation and what we can create and how we can, you know, interpret that creation with our own minds. And I think that, you know, we, we sometimes lament, well, everyone's a critic. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, we are because we, that's a gift thoughtful consumers. How can that be a gift and not used to tear other things down, but 
to Mm -hmm. be critical in a way that, you know, we try to, whenever I bring up biblical criticism with my students, they're always like, what does that mean? We're going to like shake our finger at it and be like, you're wrong. And I'm like, that's not criticism guys. Like let's, let's really broaden our mind on what being critical actually means. Yeah. I'm interested in the difference between prayer and worship in this, um, kind of extended metaphor because like, I really believe that worship on a Sunday morning or whenever it is congregational worship ought to be emotionally transporting. That is most, that is really emotional, you know, that you're feeling it in your body. But I think that we can get into trouble when we expect our prayer to always have the same emotional depth or reaction that we get when we have a worshipful experience sometimes or go see a movie or go see a concert. Because my experience of private prayer, at least, is that it's often very boring and um, takes years and years of being in relationship to the prayer practice and also, of course, to God. And that if I go through a dry spell where I continue to come to God in prayer, but I'm not feeling things as deeply as maybe I once did in another season of my life, it can be super discouraging. Mm. Like centering prayer for me is a great example. I've been like on the centering prayer journey for years. I have never liked it. I don't like it. I think that in my worst moments, I think that everyone's lying to me about it. Um, But I keep coming back to it, you know, hoping that over time, something will happen. I don't know. You know, and then other times in my private prayer, I will come to God super emotional and we'll find an emotional connection. All of that is just to say we can count on, you know, part of, it sounds like part of what is prayerful to you about going to the movies is the emotional response that brings you into deeper reflection about creation, relationships, the world around us, whatever it is. And in my experience, that happens often in worship. It happens sometimes in prayer, and, but not all the time. Sure. And probably the closest type of prayer that I write about that might speak to this is the chapter that's on meditative and contemplative prayer mm-hmm. and how the movies might also inform as much as in function echo what we hope to do in that sort of prayer is to achieve a certain stillness, allow God to come in, keep out the unnecessary. And it it sounds like my experience might be similar to what you're describing. That's really hard for me. And and that was, this whole book was an educational process for me in, in like, what are the types of prayer modeled in scripture and born out in the church tradition? So the one example I will give is a documentary called Leviathan, which is nothing but tiny cameras set in a, fishing trawler, all these nooks and crannies, there's no narration, there's no explanation. It's just these almost expressionistic images of what goes on on a fishing ship if you dropped cameras everywhere. And then it's all edited together. Many people have described it as boring. It was my favorite film of that year because of my experience with it. There's a moment where the cameras are just looking into the black night of the sea and the sky as um, the ship is going along. Again, no explanation, nothing's happening. And all of a sudden you see seagulls way off in the distance flying by, but they look like these just persistent white beats in the sky. And you suddenly, it dawns on you what they probably are and the way it just breaks the blackness. And I can't put words to why that was so moving, 
but it was the closest experience I've had to something like contemplative prayer that was just centering and stilling, taking me outside of myself, outside of my selfish concerns and priorities, and being open to something else. Short-tempered, ADD, problem king Never can know or see where the problem is It's crazy, mind. Just he sits still for story time Very cool. Um, Betsy, you have our staff pick for the day what are you going to uh grace us with okay so so i you know it's summertime so i you know i have a road trip coming up where i'm taking my daughter to camp and so i'm driving all the way from here down to like Asheville, north carolina so i got a ways to go so i was like well you know my parents they're so lovely they give me an audible book subscription like as a yearly membership thing so, mm-hmm. oh i gotta get something and my problem has become i bought too soon because now i only have five hours left on a book that's like i don't know like 13 hours and i was like oh no i'm gonna have to get something else but that's because it's so good and addictive and so it's um it's the book robin it's the um biography of robin williams by rob uh dave itzhoff who's it's cough from the New York Times is a cultural reporter. It's just really well done. Fred Berman does the audio and you can try to imagine capturing Robin Williams voice. And I'm enjoying it on so many levels. I've thought about it throughout this podcast today. Just, you know, the, I just gotten through the making of dead poet society mm-hmm. and you know that they originally tested that title and it didn't test well. And Disney wanted, whoever it was, touchstone wanted to change the title. They're like dead. That's a turnoff. Poets, who cares? <laughs> Society, who like, wants to be oh, we can't call it. <laughs> we can't call it this. And like, you know, the director and Robin are like, you know, it's going to stage this protest if they try to change the name of the movie. Hmm. And just the, how things come along at the right time. And then the behind the scenes of someone who's an incredibly creative person who suffers in the way that all of us suffer as human beings and in the wake of some high profile suicides and depression and things like that that have been happening over the last few weeks it's it's been incredibly timely and i've i've enjoyed taking a trip in around inside robin williams's head have, have, did you mention has anyone seen any of your remember his early stand up acts oh yeah i, I mean it's just amazing cuz we didn't have hbo and so okay. he'd do these things like, you know, live at the Roxy or like whatever they were. And I remember like sneaking watching it at, like at friends' houses because it was, mm. you know, he would be fairly sanitized to be on like Carson or whatever. Sure. Yeah. Just that. I remember watching Mork and Mindy. I love Mork and Mindy. And all of that. <laughs> but it's like he really, his whole back and forth of how personal is he as a performer versus how how he keeps things impersonal at a distance. Yeah. That, mm. that I find very interesting because people want to, he's someone that is so kinetic that you want yeah. to meet him, but that he would guard that pretty closely. 
Sure. And the, and the energy in those early set pieces is almost alarming, uh, how much he has. And it's, he's just, and this continued throughout his career, even in his quieter roles, is just this almost um, a maniacal search for, for some sort of peace. Like, you know, you just felt like he, he was always in search of that. And maybe he, he became such a big star because there's a reflection of that in all of us. And, and we feel that urge to, and to see someone pursuing it. So hugely, mm-hmm. um, it, it was just, it was amazing. Yeah. He was really something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Betsy. You're welcome. Great pick. You can find popping collars on the web at poppingcollarspodcast.com. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash popping collars or, and on Twitter at popping collars. We're also on Instagram. Where are Social media, just type in popping collars. You'll find it, <laughs> please. Of course, you can get our podcast wherever you download your podcasts on the usual podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, stuff like that. Just don't forget that if you do so, please uh, subscribe, rate, review the show. That way more people will see us. Also, don't forget, if you would like to support the show financially and get some sweet, sweet merchandise at the same time, you can buy one of our t-shirts. Just go to poppingcollarspodcast.com slash t-shirts, and you can wear one to the Episcopal General Convention coming up, and you'll be one of the cool kids. And you can see if you can find Liz and I there. We'll be there. We'll be there. I'm sure there's a VIP. And if you find me and you come up and tell me you're a listener, I'll give you a button. Oh my gosh. I know. We, I'll give some to Liz too. I'll give you a button too. You go. Oh my gosh. And finally, uh, you can find our show each and every single time on EpiscopalCafe.com. We love EpiscopalCafe.com. We know you will as well. Check them out for all your Episcopal news needs and beyond. Josh, where can folks find your book? Well, if you have a favorite local bookseller, check them out first, because I know it does exist at a few of those. Um, But otherwise, you know, there's a big place online that it'll be at, too. Just type in Movies Are Prayers, and you'll find it pretty easily. Thank you, Betsy. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Josh, for coming on the show. We will see you next time. Keep those collars popped.